Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 66 of the Mandolin's Beer Podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. So during this interview, I realized I completely forgot to ask Maddie what her main axe is. And so I messaged her this morning. It, it's a 1982 Gilchrist Model 5. This is what's really interesting. She has number 124 and recently was hanging out with Dom Leslie and Ronnie McCurry. And Dom's is number 126 and Ronnie's is number 128. That's pretty wild stuff. So anyway, completely forgot that. It's a great conversation. Lots of cool stuff. Right and left hand exercises and playing technique things coming up in this one. So be sure to check it out. Uh, it's also sponsored this week by Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation has streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. And you'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots Music. PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of mandolin instructors with courses including Beginning Mandolin, Intermediate Bluegrass Mandolin, and Bluegrass Fingerboard Method with Sharon Gilchrist, Bluegrass Mandolin Jam Favorites and The Advancing Mandolinist with Joe K. Walsh, Monroe-style mandolin with Mike Compton, Melodic Mandolin Tunes with John Reichman, Chord Melody Mandolin with Aaron Weinstein, Irish Mandolin with Marla Fibish, and Theory for Mandolin and Fiddle with Chad Banning. Courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month for free. Check out PegheadNation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER at checkout. That's MANDOLINBEER, all one word. It's also brought to you by Northfield Mandolins. Let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com and download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Follow their Instagram, too. Uh, they have got some just beautiful pictures that they've been posting in their feed. It's, it's crazy. I also want to thank Ear Trumpet Labs for sponsoring. They hand-build microphones in Portland, Oregon. Their mics are beautifully designed, have great feedback rejection for live use, and the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com today. Uh, if you want to see those in action, Carter Vintage just posted a sweet video or two of uh, Sierra Hall and Justin Moses playing some incredible stuff, and they're miking them with the Ear Trumpet Labs mics, so check those out. And also this week brought to you by Pava Mandolins. Pava, dedicated to building for the impassioned player right there in Austin, Texas. And again, last week's episode was with Tom Ellis, and it was a great one. So let's get into this episode with Maddie. I do want to thank everybody for checking out the podcast. As always, follow me on Instagram at Mandolins of Beer, and also follow my Facebook page. And also, if you want to support the podcast, be sure to click like, share it with your friends. And for four bucks a month, you could head over to my Patreon page and just show some support that way, too. Coming into the holidays and my gig schedule is looking light. So now would be a great time to sign up for the Patreon page. Four dollars, again, supports the podcast. If you want to go to the eight dollars, you get tabs and videos. And they've been a little bit light because I've been traveling and putting together these live streams, which was a lot more work than I thought it would be. Totally worth it, but it's it's a crazy couple months, but I'll be adding some more more stuff there today. So, there you go. Patreon. Appreciate you. And let's get into the interview with Maddie. This is a great one, and I hope you guys have a fantastic week. Talk to you next week. Cheers, everyone. Desert, 
All right, now I'd like to welcome to the Mandolins of Beer podcast, Maddie Whitler. Maddie, how's it going? It's going great, Dan. How are you? Doing good. Thank you so much for doing the podcast. I uh, was saying before we started, I've had you on my list of, of people ever since I interviewed Joe Walsh back almost a year ago. And now you and Joe Walsh are practically neighbors, it seems like. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, he uh, it's a seven-minute drive. <laughs> Oh man. And you you've been you've been picking a couple times a week with Joe? Yeah, we've been getting together here. Um, you know, we're in Portland, Maine, so it is getting a bit cold now, but we've been we've been pushing it as as long as we can uh before winter really sets in. Yeah. Have you guys gotten snow yet? Um, we've gotten some flurries here and there, but I think we'll probably get in at least one more pick this week. It's supposed to get a little warmer. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. And then you've also your your newest band. Um, you just just was it 2020? You joined Delamay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, my first uh, shows with with them were in February, early February of 2020. Yeah, I was gonna say, did you get to even play some live shows? Because <laughs> with, with the yeah, way everything we, happened, we had a great February that was like kind of jam packed, and and so got to do some really fun stuff and and we were going to be out a whole lot this summer um which all got shut down but um you know they've still been putting together some collaborative videos and various members are doing live streams and so they've very active and and good at keeping me involved too which is nice yeah that's exciting you guys were supposed to come to charleston i think yeah but that sounds right. I bet that was real close because our, our very last gig was in Asheville, North Carolina. Oh, yeah. And I bet you it was probably – that probably would have been the day before. It seems like that's kind of the the route. Yeah, and it was it was the first gig of that weekend run of touring, and we played the gig. And by the time we finished, it was obvious that, you know, we had to book our flights back. And what a time, yeah. And we did that one with Missy Rains, too. So we got to play one show uh, which was just so fun for me. I'd never played with her. And as a man on player, it's always great to have a great bass player. And Vicky, our normal bass player, is, is awesome. And I love her dearly. But it was great to play with Missy. And I was looking forward to having a tour. But we just played the one show as it as it was. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Missy, yeah, Missy Ray is kind of like every time I interview somebody for the podcast, they definitely have, it seems like a good percentage have had her on uh, their resume. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I've, you know, I've never, that was the only time I've played with her, but I'm sure we will play more in the future once possibility. Um, and then you've also been doing some session work. Yeah, I have. I've, I've been doing some, you know, that's a very um, kind of a, an activity you can control with people getting tested and um, kind of forming a small pod that lives together and records together. So um, I played on a really fun record uh, last month, maybe two months ago now, uh, and it's uh, Ethan Hawkins is the artist. He's a great guitar player, and he put together a really fun band um, with Jake Blunt on banjo and Julian Pinelli on fiddle, myself on mandolin, Brittany Carlson on bass, and Kathleen Parks of the band Twisted Pine was producing it, and it's um, and we recorded it all outside as like kind of part of our COVID safe 
measures, which turned out really cool because there's all kinds of nature sounds. And um, yeah, so that's a really fun record. And then I, I played on um, a record for a singer songwriter um, out of Boston that Nate Sabbath was producing. So it's, it's feels like one aspect of working as a musician that can still happen which is really nice. Yeah, you seem like you would probably get a lot of work with singer-songwriter players, or people too, just judging from like you're playing in the Lonely Heartstring Band because it's uh, those are, uh, it's, uh, well, still grassy-influenced. Um, I feel like they're definitely more songs than you find on some like traditional bluegrass sort of albums as you know more singer songwriter stuff different changes and and your your playing is so good and tasteful on it and adds a excellent dimension to those tunes Yeah, you know, I, it would be nice if it worked like that. (laughs) Um, uh, That is, you know, that's very much what I like to do. I love songs. I've listened to a ton of instrumental record music and uh, still do. But I think always what I come back to is is song-based music and um, thinking about, you know, producing yourselves as a band around a singer um, or around a song is kind of my favorite thing to do. And that's even my approach to when I, when I play traditional bluegrass too, hopefully you're, you're still playing in such a way that it's bluegrass, but you're serving the song. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's a good thing to, to think <laughs> yes. about. So yes. Definitely. Yeah. I, you know, I'm glad that that's something you can identify as something that I do because it is something that I love to do. I really love playing with with singer-songwriters and in and, and any uh, situation like that, really. So. Yeah, that's what I wanted to do when I first started playing mandolin, um, even though, like, the first things that got me into it were, like, Sam Bush and and, and Chris Thiele that are the first people I heard. But, like, I wanted to be, like, Tim Reynolds, who played with all those crazy effects with Dave Matthews when Dave would just play guitar and sing. And I was like, yeah, but listen to this guy just making all this cool atmospheric stuff. And then, you know, like, well, it doesn't necessarily work that way when you play mandolin. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that sometimes you can't really escape your most, uh, your deepest rooted influences that you kind of are drawn to when you're young. And so for me, that was Nickel Creek in a big way. Like, yeah, you do this because you want to be in, like, a progressive pop grass band. What else? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I kind of ended up there um, in some degree, in some ways, but uh, not to that level, perhaps. But, yeah, very much it, it definitely influences my approach to everything, the fact that 
I didn't necessarily come from a super traditional background. And before that, my my big musical love was 90s pop country, which is extremely song-based and extremely concise and precise production on those tracks. And so... No kidding. Yeah. Who, who were some of the artists? Um, Like Alan Jackson is a really big early influence to me and the Dixie Chicks. Those records really hold up if you go back i mean alan's band at that time was some of the most killing nashville session folks uh, all guys really of course but um you know you had brent mason and uh paul franklin and uh roy husky jr and pig robbins and larry adaminiak and it was just and Stuart duncan on fiddle it's just like this kind of wrecking crew of nashville <laughs> absolutely uh you know session players and then the dixie chicks records are just incredible production it's just so every decision is so well thought out and so clear and especially i mean i love their record home the kind of bluegrassy one night three pachosa produced and Feely's all over that and Adam Steffi's on it and Brian Sutton's all over it and it's got some really it's like a really great example of how to produce a bluegrass version of a pop country record. So you grew up West Coast. I did, yeah. I grew up um, in a town called Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, a little town, right? <laughs> a little town, yeah. Um, particularly a, a suburb called La Crescenta, I guess, but it's all, um, you know, LA is just kind of a weird, big sprawl. It's not like cities on the West Coast, on the East Coast here where... It's like pretty clear where the city is and where the city isn't. Um, in LA, it's all just kind of one big blob um, that goes on forever. So <laughs> you don't meet, you don't hear many people born in LA. It seems like a lot of people move there. Um, yeah, I guess so. You know, it's I mean, I guess from my experience, like I've like anybody I've known who's from Los Angeles has always been like, oh, I moved to Los Angeles. It's cool to hear somebody who was actually born there. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's all I know, and it, it's home for me, and and where I grew up. It, uh, you know, there's there's a pretty good bluegrass scene there, and as I got older and more um, interested in bluegrass and better at it, and just kind of digging deeper, I I did really get into the fact that, and still still enjoy this, that there was has been such a great scene around Los Angeles. And so many great uh, bluegrass musicians that have come out of Los Angeles, um, particularly in the 60s and 70s. There was a lot that was really happening around there. And so just kind of, uh, you know, connecting to that as like a as bluegrass that is geographically relevant to me has always been something that's cool. But, you know, that's where. Honestly, I, I sometimes make the argument that all the best bluegrass musicians come from Los Angeles. Because, <laughs> um, you know, we've got 
Stuart Duncan and Allison Brown and the White Brothers and the Rice Brothers. Oh, and, yeah. Um, and the Nickel Creek folks and Gabe Witcher and Rob Ikes is, you know, he's a little north, but we'll claim him as like Southern California. So, <laughs> you know, that right there is a pretty wild um, amount of kind of the best people in bluegrass. So I like I like to think about that sometimes. Yeah, for sure. That's amazing. So how did you get into uh, playing mandolin? Um, well, I started on Texas style fiddle. Um, and that's because I had an aunt who did that. And so when I was nine, I picked it up and it was very much like an extra extracurricular activity. Um, and like I, I had an aptitude for it, but it wasn't connecting as like music, really. It was just like something I did. And um, because I played fiddle, I, I eventually got a mandolin and would play um they would always have a picking contest at the fiddle contest. So like a big part of why I got the mandolin was so I could enter the picking contest and just do more contests. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. And, and eventually I, when I got asked to join my first bluegrass band, when I was 14, I was asked to join on the mandolin. And it was at a time when I was actually playing a lot of Scrug style banjo uh, and had I was, I remember I was disappointed that the band wasn't calling me to play banjo. <laughs> but, um, so being 14 and joining this bluegrass band that played in farmer's markets and played local gigs around was really the thing that like made all the dots connect. Like I'd, I'd had the technical facility from kind of doing this extracurricular style approach to music for a while. And then finally here it was like playing with other people in this real situation and understanding how it all fit together as music. Um, so that was the thing. And then at the same time that that happened, like I got obsessed with Nick Creek, like just a 14 year old. <laughs> obsessed. It was unbelievable. And uh, I watched the Chris Bealey instructional video every single day until I could just play through it all the the homespun video he did when he was like 17 and oh yeah it's incredible that was kind of happening at the same time as i was in this like traditional bluegrass band and so it was always trying to figure out how to meet in the middle of like playing practical stuff and wanting to be chris Bailey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah did you go through a big thing of like just sitting down and learning all those tunes on the albums as well um, yeah, you know, I know a lot of Thiele tunes. What, you, what, what, because uh, they all seem just so hard. You know, what, for you, what is the hardest Thiele tune that you think you have learned so far? Oh, boy. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Like, I don't, I think that there are ones, you know, like I could play you all the notes of Song for Young Queen, I think, but I don't think I could really do it justice at tempo. <laughs> You know, 
like Wolf Creek Pass, I've been playing for years, and I could maybe do it at tempo these days. But, um, you know, it, it all depends. You know, so much of what's difficult about it and, and why I learned them is his performance of it. And when I learn them, I do try to really, like, you know, get all of the the little the tone and everything about how he's performing it. That's like the real useful kind of information to me is like, how is he getting that sound? Um, so that's, that's a big part of it. And so like sometimes to warm up, I'll play like a feely tune to just get in that mindset. But similarly, like if I'm playing a bluegrass gig, I might just play like some Ronnie McCurry solos to, to warm up um, in a more like stylistically appropriate kind of feel. So but yeah, I, I've I've learned a lot of spent so much time. <laughs> yeah, I used to have a, a folder on my computer of pictures uh, that I'd saved from the internet of Chris Dealey's right hand. Um, really? I would just stand in front of the mirror and kind of like compare, you know, how how the hand how my hand looked. I love this I stuff. <laughs> yeah, I was really, really obsessed. And, and yeah, I don't know if I can recommend that. Like, uh, it, I, I'm glad to have the facility and do the things that I do now, but I can't practice like that. And I don't necessarily see the benefit of being uh, as, like, beat your head against the wall obsessed <laughs> for so long. So. Oh, that's great. What type of stuff were you doing in the traditional bluegrass band that you were playing in at that time? Um, They had a pretty standard repertoire that was like actually pretty, looking back, like a pretty nice cross-section of a lot of stuff. And, you know, it was really just bluegrass standards. Um, Lots of bluegrass album band stuff, but you know, looking back, they were also calling a lot of Flat and Scruggs stuff that I don't necessarily hear as often. That was nice to play, but yeah, it was just really, really standard stuff. Um, and I was really like the first gig I played with them, I didn't understand how chords worked at all. Um, so like I knew chords. And so if it was in the key of A, I would just play an A chord the whole time. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, and like I also knew like what a pentatonic scale was. And I remember the moment on the gig when it was like, oh, this is why my teacher taught me that. <laughs> because <laughs> it, it kind of worked. Um and then that was a big rut to get out of many years later. But um yeah, so I was really like really learning on the gig and mm-hmm. just playing bluegrass standards and, and it wasn't it was a really good uh, space to do that for sure. <laughs> well, um, was it people the same age? Not at all. No. Oh, really? The uh, next youngest was probably in their forties at the time. Oh, get out of here! Wow. <laughs> uh, and then the band leaders were in their seventies, I think. Larry and Charlene. So yeah, I I've always you know. <laughs> I would I would spend my weekends hanging out with old people. Playing <laughs> so I was really cool in high school. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so neat though! What a cool what a cool story. So then, yeah. was that kind of like your your whole band through like your high school years, or did you did you like play in some other different bands as you were as you were growing up too? 
Yeah, I played in some other bands around LA. You know, LA has a pretty insular scene. It's it's really big and it's really far from anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't end up with a lot of touring acts out of LA. So th- there was a little scene of bluegrass, and I played in a few different bands. And honestly, my best paying band that I played in was a, a band that played like children's folk music. Oh wow! No kidding. Um, and so did those kind of gigs around LA, but, um, yeah, LA is a funny scene. You know, you can really be a, a very big fish in a small pond that looks big. (laughs) Um, You know, if you're like a fairly competent bluegrass musician, you can make a living in LA playing Mm -hmm. gigs, uh, doing you know doing session work doing background work whenever they need like a mandolin player in a movie or a commercial or whatever right um you know there's these people that make their make a living playing music make a living playing bluegrass instruments and you will never hear about them anywhere because they're just kind of doing their thing in LA which is super (laughs) cool um but also not necessarily what I'm interested in. So Yeah, sure. Well that's the thing. You gotta you gotta find what makes you happy, that's for sure. Yeah, for sure. So now did you always know then at that point that music was gonna be because you went to Berkeley and that's a that's a big decision and commitment to move, you know, th- almost the entire way across the country. Yeah. You know, by the time I was at the age of making the decision, it kinda was feeling like there was no other option Mm -hmm. um for for a lot of reasons you know i'm very uh lucky to have such incredibly supportive parents who at at no point when in my whole life when i've been insisting like yeah i'm gonna be a professional mandolin player (laughs) uh, they've always been like yeah cool that's great (laughs) (laughs) that's that's awesome really 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 thankful for that but um yeah the berkeley thing you know by the time i was i was uh, in my later teen years and kind of getting towards going to college i was just super into the like progressive acoustic scene and so much of that was coming out of boston and coming out of berkeley and just seeing crooked still and the deadly gentleman and um, Joy Kills Sorrow and Della May was just getting started. And um, I remember being excited about Ari and Mia Friedman and all kinds of just like New England acts. Um, and a lot of this was really centered around Berkeley. And when I, so like I ended up going there because it just felt like that's where all the music that I like is coming out of. Um, and then when I showed up, it was just kind of, insane in terms of the mandolin world and the music world and and who all was there at the time and it was you know i showed up it was me and um sarah jarose was around and sierra hall and jake jolliffe and dominic leslie and eric robertson and bryce milano um as far as mandolin goes and Joe Walsh was around. And then, you know, you also had Julian Lodge and Courtney Hartman and Alex and Mike Burnett on the fiddles and Duncan. It was just kind of, it's like hard to even think of everyone. Cause it was just kind of so many people who are now 
really doing amazing things in the scene. It's really cool to see. So yeah, it um, blows my mind. <laughs> just you yeah. know, it, just how much talent comes out of that Boston area that's just so consistently good and consistently different in a great way. I mean, it all has a familiar thread, but you know, it's it's really cool to hear the variety of stuff that comes out of there. Yeah, you know, I think I think that comes out of a lot of things. One being, you know, it kind of begets itself. It's like a lot of cool stuff is coming out of there, and so young folks who are interested in doing that move there. And then the other thing that's that's really great is that Boston is just really uh, well situated and located to be supporting kind of small acoustic acts, and that you can kind of tour around New England and drive an hour in any direction and be in some new small town that has some small coffee house or concert, you know, house concert series um, and make a little, and you do these tours that are really supportive of the musicians up here. Um, and it also encourages people to form bands and start a project because these are all the kind of gigs. They're not like pickup gigs that you might book. You kind of have to, at least have an EP or a website, you have to exist a little bit mm -hmm. as a band sure. to get these. And so I, I think that's part of why so many bands come out of Boston is because for the immediate landscape of, of playing gigs in the area, it really encourages you to put together some sort of project, um, which is a really cool thing. And, and that wasn't the case in New York where there's so many gigs all the time. I think people that, you know, there's no reason you would ever get a group of people together to, work a bunch of stuff out for free before you ever got a gig because you could just be out there playing fun gigs and yeah right exactly yeah what was your um what was your audition like what tunes did you uh what tunes did you do for berkeley mm -hmm. oh wow uh, <laughs> so long ago oh god you're just bringing me back it was just like in this uh it was one of those studio instrument rental warehouses. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, they were seeing everyone. And some guy went before me with, like, a nine-string electric bass. And I don't, you know, I don't remember doing very well. I didn't do very well. Maybe this is good if anyone's thinking of auditioning to Berkeley. Good information. <laughs> but, I, you know, I, I uh, played the Bach G minor Presto. I think that's what it is. The big, you know, mm -hmm. everyone really does it. But so I did it and I played it okay. And I didn't do great at sight reading. I've never been good at, at sight reading and, and some other stuff. And, and they were like, you know, it's great. And I think I would have gotten in and everything would have been fine. And at the very last second, they're like, so you're a mandolin player. Do you play like traditional stuff at all? And I was like, oh yeah. And, and so like, I just played like temperance reel a few times and improvised some stuff. And that's what they were really into. They really? were just like, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, it's what I did and do well. And so looking back, it totally makes sense. But also that's that's just kind of like they're very into supporting the Roots program. And if you're coming in and saying, like, here I am, a Roots musician, they're, they're very into having that and supporting that and it's more unique than than most of what they're seeing which is a lot of kind of 
I don't know. The bluegrass scene is, is a really amazing thing. Like if you got to imagine if you didn't have the bluegrass scene and you're trying to find people to play, it's just like a lot more random. If you're trying to form a rock band or anything like that, there's just not the, not the infrastructure of like levels of jams and levels of gigs and kind of hierarchy and ladder that uh, really lends itself to getting people involved in playing, which is a nice thing. So, and how many years? How many years did you go to Berkeley for? Four years. Was it for for the mandolin degree, or was it? Did you go for a different sort of thing? Yeah, I think technically, most of the time I was going for a mandolin performance degree, mm-hmm. and then I think at the end I switched to what they call a professional music major to try to make it all work with credits and stuff to sure. graduate. But, um. Yeah, you know, Berkeley, it's it's really, I met some of the, the best musicians I've ever played with there and some of the worst. And <laughs> it's it's really a giant resource that is exactly what you make of it. And so I ended up with way more credits than I needed to graduate, but so many of them counted for nothing, essentially. But they were some of the most important and interesting classes I took while I was there. Um, yeah, which classes? You know, that's that's really cool. Um, I mean, classes like that, that didn't count for anything, but were incredibly meaningful. In particular, was a lot of uh, there were a, a few semesters in a row that Julian Lodge was teaching a lot, and oh, so wow. I did a semester of uh, private lessons with him, and then three semesters of his class, which was kind of like a free improvisation and composition class it really kind of just was a big like discussion of music and in a lot of cool ways and um you know some of the most influential stuff i've ever encountered um and accounts for nothing (laughs) towards my degree (laughs) but like that's the thing about berkeley is like if you're there and you're you know what you want to get out of it um and if what you want to get out of it is just like taking the chance to learn from all the cool people, you can just put yourself in those situations and, you know, maybe you won't have the credits for the degree, but, you know. It's kind of a great example to, I mean, for people who are kind of learning on the internet though, in a sense of like, don't, you you really don't have to limit yourself to anything. I mean, if you're interested in something and, and, and want to branch out to something that might seem weird, be worth the investigation to do it and you might be surprised like something on the outside that influences you in a world you would have never thought you know totally um yeah whenever people ask me a question that's like should i do this in music or this the answer is always do both like if you're clearly these are two approaches that you're interested in so you should be able to do both I remember somebody that was some really great advice somebody gave me when I first started too. I was like, well, should I focus on like bluegrass or just like Bill Monroe? Or should I focus on dog or there's this Thiele guy or there's jazz? And he's like, yeah, it's all relative, man. Just learn stuff. <laughs> yeah. And that's, you know, that's kind of it. Like I, these days, like I've just spent so much time working, you know, I don't really, my practice is all very kind of aimless and mostly just like playing and thinking through ideas or jamming along to records. So it's just kind of like, whatever it is, I'm like, I will figure it out and, and follow my interests because that's kind of the most genuine 
guiding factor of what to work on. And that's also like, I think what you're talking about in, in terms of what do I learn is how we become individuals as musicians, because your, your individual collective knowledge is unlike anyone else's. No one else has learned all the specific same solos in the same way that anyone else has. So that's, that's kind of, I think what makes you an individual, like nothing is, nothing is truly original. Nothing hasn't been done before, but you can make connections that other people might not have made. And that's the, that's where the magic happens perhaps. When you were taking those private lessons from Julian, were you taking a mandolin or were you taking those on guitar? On mandolin. Oh yeah. man. I, so I, I would love to ask then like what kind of, cause I love Julian's playing. He, he is <laughs> just so different. So what is some, what are some of the things that you learned from him that you applied to mandolin? You know, so I remember one great lesson, which was, um, the the class that I was taking kind of concurrent to this and for some other semesters was this like free improv class. And so we would get into the class and it's a class of very competent, maybe 10 musicians. And we would just start improvising as a group and with the collective goal that our improvisation might sound like a composition, which is an important goal because it suddenly means that you might repeat things, you might have sections, you might signal to each other more than if it's truly free and has no structure. Um, and that's, so that's not quite what we were going for. And I remember in this private lesson saying to Julian, like, sometimes I have a hard time figuring out what to play. You know, someone will play something cool. Do I join in playing on that cool thing? Uh, do I do something different? A lot of the times personally, I would end up chopping, like just putting a, <laughs> you know, giving everything this backbeat and like, that's cool. And it's a great thing to do, but it's a very mandolin player. <laughs> and, um, and so out of this discussion came some really great advice for playing in any ensemble, I think. But um, so one thing we talked about in that moment was playing musical opposites um, and thinking of musical opposites. And these are really basic concepts of, uh, fast and slow and high and low and loud and soft and consonant and dissonant and uh, double stops or single notes, all of these things. And to just start playing a phrase and then try to play a phrase that could you could argue would be its musical opposite. And that could be a lot of things. It's not a literal thing. Um, but so maybe you start with a phrase that's really diatonic and fast and high and loud. And then the opposite might be something that is dissonant and slow and quiet um, and maybe uh, out of time, like rubato. So in kind of doing this exercise and thinking of all these concepts, what you're training your mind to do is kind of look for the holes in music. So. And at this point, like I can look at an ensemble and see what everyone's doing and think of something that is not happening that can happen because because of these musical opposites. Like you're just kind of filling in the gaps of like, well, no one's doing a really high kind of thing or no one's doing uh, a sustained kind of pad thing or there's no backbeat 
really happening or some, you know, kind of precise rhythmic thing happening or whatever it is. So that, that was a really um, great exercise for kind of finding uh, your role in, in an ensemble in that regard. Yeah. That's a neat one. Yeah. Oh, that's so, so many others. Like uh, he's, he's really such an inspiration because it, it was really never, it never felt like he had a curriculum. And that's kind of what I always aspire to. It's, it, it was more about you would come to him and kind of lay it all out there and he would be really good at assessing and problem solving and all of these exercises, he, it, a lot of them, he would just kind of make up based on what was needed, like what he saw missing musically. And he's like, here's an exercise you could do for that, that he would just kind of make up for it. <laughs> so that was a, a really inspiring approach. And, and it's definitely how I try to approach workshops and classes and things like that to, um, you know, try to meet people where they're at and bring them up from there rather than just have like a curriculum of, of like, here's what I show people. So yeah, you do a lot of uh, workshop sort of things or well did a lot of workshop <laughs> sort of things. Yeah. Um, I've done a few, you know, I, I attended a lot of camps and workshops coming up with a lot of great people. And it's kind of one of my favorite ways to teach. I, I do like teaching private lessons especially if it's someone who's um really has a vision of what they'd like to do but I really love workshops and, and camps because it's kind of like I, I can just say here is all the information you need to know for the next year and go practice because a lot of the times that's that's mostly what's needed um you know I feel like I could tell you everything you need to know to play the mandolin well in a few hours but doing it <laughs> right yeah yeah that's yeah that's definitely the thing and this would be a good time to also point out that you do zoom lessons if people want to contact you um about taking yeah. some of those private lessons yes i do i've been doing some zoom lessons and i i've got a couple students right now um on any of the instruments that i play so i've got a big <laughs> I've got a banjo student right now and we've done some claw hammer and Scruggs style stuff. And I've had bluegrass guitar students and, um, and, and mandolin students, of course. So I'm down to talk about whatever. Losing my hair many years from now. Will you still be sending me a Valentine? Birthday greetings, bottle of wine. If I've been out to quarter to three. Would you lock the door? Will you still need me? Or will you still feed me when I'm 64? Now you, um, the Lonely Heartstring Band that formed while you were in the, and in, in, was it while you were still in Berkeley and attending Berkeley? Yeah, that's right. Um, was that kind of like your big main project that came out of there? Were there any other ones that you, of note that you that you did? Um, I mean, there was all kinds of stuff. You know, back then I was I was playing a good bit with Molly Tuttle and uh, John Mylander was around a lot, and there were just like a lot of local projects. I, I was briefly in a in a band called Blue Hat Yeah. Um, 
which kind of uh, turned into Mile 12. Oh, wow. Uh, because it, it was Nate Sabat and Bronwyn and BB, and then myself and Mike Robinson. And Mike lived in New York, and I was already in the Lonely Heartstring Band. So essentially, at a certain point, they kind of kicked us out and got Evan, and then eventually got Dave, <laughs> um, who could like actually be in a band. Um, so that was a really fun early. You know, there were all kinds of of collaborations and things back then and then it feels like as we all got older it, it got codified into the thing that we did which for me was very much the only heartstring band and I met all those guys at Berkeley I met Gabe my first semester like leaving a class he had a class in the same room right after me so I'd see him in the hallway and then I met George in a Django Reinhardt ensemble and George's twin brother plays bass so we met him Charles through that and Patrick our fiddle player was also attending Berkeley so that's um yeah it was fully a Berkeley band and then once uh I was done in 2014 and we were all out of school we were just like able to hit the ground running yeah and it started it started as a Beatles like a Beatles grass band right that's right yeah we we started as a Beatles cover band um we were hired for a wedding to play Beatles music uh, on bluegrass instruments, and we took it really seriously. <laughs> cool. Like, we were just music students, and and also it was just this era of like, you know, Pubingo Night was happening a lot, and the Punch Brothers doing those covers on a five-piece bluegrass band where they would recreate all the sounds on the record, like. I I had never heard anyone do that before. And, you know, I think that's a huge thing. And and so very much our approach to playing with Beatles material was was based on that, based on the idea that we could get all of the sounds that are on the record for the most part and recreate them on our instruments. So that was it, it turned out to be great for a lot of reasons. You know, it was like a great exercise as a for a band to do to like work out how to play a lot of different feels and grooves and be doing a lot of different kind of things um, in a song. And it was also great as a band to start out that way because we could, we could be booked at a festival and guarantee that people would like the material, <laughs> uh, which is a great thing. You know, like if you're a competent Beatles cover band, you can get booked at festivals for sure. Um, so, and then we kind of slowly, you know, at first there was one original song and then there would be like a couple in the set and it slowly kind of shifted until we, we, you know, don't play. We're just ourselves. We'll do a Beatles cover every now and then, but yeah, it was a fun way to start for sure. Yeah, that's neat. And you guys, was it a, did you do a Beatles EP as well? Am I, am I mistaken in saying that? Um, that's right. Yeah. Our first EP, I think you can find it on Bandcamp. Yeah. Okay. That's right. Yeah. It's so good. That's, that's initially how I first, first came across you guys. I was oh, like, wow. yeah. And I'm like, oh, cause I mean, yeah, like the Beatles outside of like bluegrass stuff, probably my all time favorite band. I mean, just so many amazingly good songs with so many, like you said, so many parts, you know? Yeah. Well, and that was part of why it works so well for a bluegrass band to cover the Beatles stuff is because there are so many parts. We, 
you know, we did some other, we've done other covers of other stuff and you, it really helps to pick, you have to pick the right songs that have a lot of parts because if you pick like a Tom Petty song or something, like the parts you've got are like drums, bass, guitar. Uh, and they're very simple and a bluegrass band is kind of an absurdly busy sound and, and you need to kind of have a lot of things to be able to divvy them up among everyone. And even then you end up with kind of really divvying out, you know, specific parts to the degree that, that you can to like where our cover of Graceland, I only, the only thing I do in the entire song are the two backbeat chops. Um, and it's a very Zen practice <laughs> to, to play a whole song and, and not really play any notes at all. But it's very unselfish too. That's what makes you an incredible musician. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it, I mean, come on, we know a lot of mandolin players. <laughs> you know, we'd be like, yeah. where's my solo? <laughs> yeah. I guess so. You know, I think fiddle players are a bit more worried. <laughs> yeah. <myself. Yeah. laughs> mandolin players, mandolin players are, are the scientists of the band. You look at them. We all, we all wear glasses. We're all like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like there's a type when you kind of, if you were just to survey all the mandolin players, you'd be like, I see a theme here. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, um, that being said, I I appreciate that, and like, I really. Uh, you know, there, that is somewhat conscious. Like I'm always, you can never make the, the decision. You can, you know, you'll just like make yourself super angry and think yourself in circles. If you're like, Oh, I wish my bandmate would play less, but um, you can absolutely be the one that's like, I'm going to play less and just let my bandmate, you know, that, that will fix the situation because now there's not a conflict or now there's a busy thing. And you can only do that so much, of course, and you got to strike a balance. But but always in any ensemble, you have the option to, to be the one to make more space, too. And that's a very useful uh, thing to be able to do if you can can do it right yeah did you have a um did you have a favorite uh, Beatles tune to play when you when you were doing the Beatles cover strictly hmm that's a good question um I don't know if I really have a favorite they they were all pretty fun um I really love playing the and the one that we still kind of would do in sets um is the George Harrison song something oh cool and a lot of my part on that is just kind of emulating the drum part. Oh, that was a lot of kind of what I ended up doing was, was drum parts um, and percussion. And I think, you know, what's so fun is, is the, the bridge and it, it kind of has this triplet feel and I'm doing these triplet chops to kind of uh, emulate the, the rolling toms that are happening that the triplet, uh, um, in, in the bridge there. And so that's, that's a fun moment to kind of, you know, deal with.
it's all fun you know it's all about the whole group playing a simple thing really well and all together and super worked out so it comes across and it's kind of like magic but really everything is really really meticulously planned (laughs) right Uh, yeah i can imagine yeah yeah and you guys um was the song the tide was the the, one thing I noticed too when doing a little bit of research here I have both the albums and but when I went to Spotify just to see if I was missing anything one of the things I noticed which and you do not see this a lot with any sort of acoustic bass bands or a, a bluegrassy bands or whatever but the song The Tide has almost one million plays on Spotify find me hanging my coat upon your wall my dear I've walked these snowy sidewalks felt the rain come pouring down on me and so it was that on a show or a movie did it get it because it's it, that's a huge <laughs> amount of listens yeah, definitely not anything like that, but I think it did get on a, a popular playlist at one point, which is generally how those things happen. Nice. Um, that's awesome. I mean, it's a great song, obviously, too, but it's like, uh, you know, a million listens is, that's a that's a lot of listens. <laughs> yeah, that is a lot. Um, that's news to me. I didn't, I didn't know that. I don't have Spotify, but... That's cool. Yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, for to, to, to frame it, like Graceland, which was a really popular tune that you put out, has like 93,000 listens. You know, so it's just like, yeah, that's cool. that's great. Yeah, that's, I mean, that is great. Um, <laughs> you know, when you stream Graceland, a lot of the percentage of the penny that would go to us goes <laughs> yeah. to Paul. Yeah, that that uh, one seventeenth of a cent is uh, heading over to Paul Simon. (laughs) That gets divvied up like four ways, and then the remainder fourth gets divvied up five ways or whatever. So music math. Um, speaking of your, uh, of the toms and, and your rhythm and right hand, I'd love to talk a little bit about your right hand, uh, your playing stuff. Uh, one, Joe Walsh mentioned that he has some really cool exercises that he referenced during the episode. And I, I should say too, like, I really love on some of the YouTube videos of the band, like you really are kind of like the metronome for the kickoff and you have, you, you have like a great feel. It's not just like, all right, guys, one, two, three. I mean, it's like, it's very um, very rhythmic and sets a, sets a vibe, you know, and it's not just like a one, two, three, four, you get a feel for the song in that, in that count off. I think it's so neat. Well, I'm glad you like it. You know, it's, it's certainly, (laughs) that is for sure something I do. Um, and you know, especially in those situations, like I, I like to, uh, have control I generally have a pretty strong opinion of where the tempo should be (laughs) and such um and also with the Lonely Heartstring Band most of the time I was uh the one who wrote the set lists and you know it just kind of very felt like I you know it kind of not that I was a director at all but like sometimes George and Patrick could focus more on the audience and and interacting with them and I could be the one that was like really ready to give the tempo as soon as we were ready or something like that. Sure. Um, and then the other part of that, you know, the long count off is 
such a Thiele thing. And <laughs> I got it from him um, doing the, always doing the one, two, one, two, three, and then into whatever. But, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather, especially live, I'd rather have that really solid big long count off than, and have everyone absolutely start together than, um, you know, the alternative, which is, you know, because I've seen bands try to really have something where they like count off quietly or do something and it, and it can cause issues or whatever. I don't know. I, I, I feel like putting it out in the open is a fine thing to do. So I'm glad. I'm glad you like it. I do. I do. Yeah. I think it's really cool. And again, it's, 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 it, I, it not only sets a tempo, but it sets a feel in my mind, you know, which I think is a, an important thing. Sometimes I can get lost in, in very metronomic music. Yeah. Well, you know, that's the funny thing. Like Lonely Heartstrings Band is certainly a band that practiced to a metronome a lot. And I practice to a metronome have and continue to a, a whole lot and but that being said when you're in the moment i i feel like every unit of time is a new unit of time like there's an adjustment being made between every bass note and chop of like are we kind of on the head on the front edge of this are we right in the middle of it um did they play something that was out on purpose or not on purpose or whatever it is, did the singer suddenly do something that makes it slower? Um, and so, yeah, all of that, all of that is really important to consider. And so like generally in any practical consideration, I'm trying to put the chop so that it's like either dead center of the beat or maybe a little bit ahead of, and, specifically listening to the vocals, the lead vocals and the bass as like the two most important guiding factors. Cause your relationship with the bass is like with Charles in Lonely Heartstring Band, we can be absolutely metronomic. But sometimes something else will happen in the band where if we were to stay metronomic, it would sound wrong. But if we kind of go with the time moving slightly we actually make it sound right. And so it's it's always striking a balance between it, it it never does anyone any good to insist on being metronomic if you're not with the rest of the band. So. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think that also, uh, I mean, sometimes I think, you know, as much as I, I practice with the metronome, but sometimes a little bit of speeding that song up or pulling it back just a little bit during a live performance is the difference between an extremely emotional experience or just a dry one i mean sometimes you have to speed it up to get this point across to build intensity you know yeah i mean it it can really depend and certainly i think for every band they you know every band plays stuff faster live that's just a thing oh yeah um you know you literally hear music faster when you're heart rate is up you you hear fast music it sounds slower to you so like even if you're trying to play at the same tempo because you're in this like adrenaline moment like you're going to play it a little faster but certainly thinking about yeah just just all of that you know i especially with bluegrass and especially with the mandolin especially in thinking about the chop just being aware of what kind of chop you're setting you know if i'm playing really um 
if I'm playing like mash style bluegrass, like Dan Tominsky band style bluegrass, I'm going to be putting the chop like dead in the middle. You know, of like what would Adam Steffi be doing? If you really, really, there's no swing at all. There's absolutely like the the distance between the chops are absolutely even. As opposed to if I was playing, you know, Lonely Heartstring Band, when we play bluegrass, it's more, it's closer to JD Crow and the New South. And that's very much what we listen to. And that, like, I can put the chop and in kind of a Ricky Skaggs ish, like, absurdly ahead place sometimes. <laughs> And it, it totally works because that's the style of bluegrass that we're doing. And like, particularly we would do uh, Born to Be With You pretty often. one where you could just be so far ahead on the chop as long as you're not literally rushing or, or getting off of it but like just really be the instrument in front of everyone else pulling it all along if you if you have a band that can do that that's super fun to do but I I really enjoy just like the diversity of experiences of having the mass jam and being able to play to that and having the trad jam and being able to play to that and whatever else so um, so would you mind maybe sharing one of those right hand exercises with the listeners? So one of the things I kind of have um, in, in one of the questions I asked near the end of the podcast is if you had 10 minutes a day to work on something, um, what would you work on? Um, so I guess we could kind of tie it into that. Maybe not, it doesn't have to necessarily be 10 minutes a day, but I would, and, and I don't want you to share a bunch of them because I want people to sign up for Zoom lessons with you to find out more about these right hand exercises as well. But if, if you could give us a teaser of uh of one that would be awesome yeah i mean i it you know it's it's really funny to me that this has become like a thing that i'm a little known for (laughs) Uh, because it was just like me kind of working out what made sense to me um and it's and it's all it's it's also not original to me it's all kind of compilations of other stuff um and i haven't written it down I probably should. Um, regardless, uh, it, there's there's kind of three sections to it. Um, all, the second section is is very much based on John Moore's right hand exercises of kind of cross picking on two strings, cross picking on three strings, cross picking on four strings, and going through his particular exercises. There were some that I felt were left out or where he didn't kind of extrapolate it to its the fullest extent. So I have some, it's basically John Moore's exercises plus some. And then the, the third section is again, based on the Chris Feely exercises from the homespun video, but he kind of 
again, just gives you one example of it. And um, so, you know, I, I kind of extrapolate it onto starting on every string um, as opposed to just the one string that he starts on. And then the first section is, is a pretty easy thing that probably everyone could just like do. And, and I came to it simply because I started to do it one day long ago at this point and just couldn't like it just was difficult and was like well that's that's something I need to work on and that so that's just um with a metronome kind of going and playing eighth notes so it's tucka 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 um do just eight notes on each string so eight notes on the g eight notes on the d eight notes on the a and then the e and then I usually repeat the top string so then e a d g back and then the time through, keeping the same tempo and everything, do seven notes on a string. So you're going to end up with um, your pick strokes coming up in different ways and, and oh, weird ways. Yeah. Um, and then you you just do this, and you you do uh, you just take a number off each time and go eight seven six five four three two one, and one is essentially cross picking across four strings. Um, but it's especially useful for getting the odd numbers. I find that people who have never tried this before tend to have a hard time with seven and with five. Three comes a little more naturally. And then four and two are important because they're just, um, you know, it's just really good to get your hand moving across the strings. Um, <clears throat> and it's kind of a, an awkward motion of always switching strings on a downstroke, which I always find to be more awkward than switching on an upstroke. Um, so, yeah, it, it just covers a lot of useful things. That's a great um, one. Yeah, you know, and then the alternatively, if you wanted to really make that an advanced one that I did for a while, it would be uh, taking the same amount of time and playing notes. So playing eighth notes, essentially, and then playing a group of even seven notes it, or seven even notes within the space, if that makes sense. I, I don't know what time. Basically dividing the same amount of time so that um, you're, it's just good for working out uh, mixed meters. Oh yeah. Wow. That's yeah. I'm getting confused just thinking of it. <laughs> yep, yeah. yeah so like you, trying to fit seven into eight in a sense. Yeah. So you have eight, yeah, exactly. You fit seven into eight and you fit five into eight and you do, you fit three into eight or whatever. So, um, that would be the, the kind of more, the next level of things, but yeah, all of this was, I, I did, there was a time when I was in high school and a teenager and I, I did do this every day, but, um, and it's all really useful stuff, but these days, if I do any of it, it'll just be moments of it because, I was playing and I'm like, oh, my right hand is, I, you know, not getting this shift really. Um, but these days, more often any progress or thinking about my right hand is, is more thinking about um, ways to keep it loose um, at tempo and just physical anatomical kind of considerations. Look at, looking at pictures of Thiele. His right hand. <laughs> <laughs> Not so much these days. And honestly, honestly, it was like for sure a major 
developed like i think it was a useful thing like i think you can get oh i'm sure it was a certain degree by like trying to copy directly but it was also so much more useful when i stopped doing that and started uh paying more attention to the sound (laughs) um and, you know, and, and stop worrying about it for a long time. And then I would check in and, and my right hand would look different. Like when I see it in videos, I'm like, really? That's what my right hand looks like? But um, I worry about it less and I, it works a lot better. <laughs> uh, you know, I can play more and um, yeah. Do you have any um, specific like left hand exercises, like a real simple one that might help somebody out? Since you probably see all sorts of when you teach in those camps, you see all sorts of uh, different ranges of players. Yeah. Um, you know, you should, you just want to have really good technique. You want to you want to make sure you're holding it. It it all comes from uh, kind of the same approach as holding a violin. Um, so sometimes I have students actually hold it up to their chin like a violin and seeing the the right angle um, that happens with their arm and wrist and the instrument is really important and keeping that little space um, between the thumb and index finger and the back of the neck should have a little space. It shouldn't be like tucked right into that little groove. Um, Keeping your fingers close to the fretboard is is super important and something I worked on at one point and don't think about much. Uh, That's all stuff I'm sure people have heard before. One thing that maybe is a new consideration is just uh, in terms of people who uh, have have pain or have a hard time doing certain shapes or, or things like this, just actually considering how your hand is moving and particularly, I have people consider that it's not the motion of uh, pulling a rope or opening a doorknob. It's it's a much smaller motion. And and um, so I, I have people do this sometimes, which comes uh, from a video of Janos Starker, who is a famous cello instructor, and he has students do this. And what it is, is he has the students uh, take each other's left hands and without thinking at all, just squeeze as hard as you can. And, you know, you'll you'll squeeze your hand, but you're not going to crush the person for the most part. <clears throat> and when you do this naturally, probably the first time without thinking, your bicep is going to tense up, your tricep is going to tense up, muscles in your shoulder are going to tense up and all of that. And then the next part of the exercise is to shake it out and do it all again and completely cut off all the rest of your arm. Your bicep should not be engaged. Your tricep should not be super engaged with your left hand. Oh, wow. And all of the motion and all of the strength that you need to play anything starts at the wrist. It starts literally at the the base of your palm and goes to the end of your fingers and you, sh- you don't need to be incorporating any other muscles. And so often when people have pain or are having a hard time holding things down and stuff, it's because they're incorporating all these muscles and tensing them up that absolutely don't need to be tensed up. So then the end of this drill is he has people take their hands again and now considering all this squeeze and what they find is they can squeeze as hard, if not harder, um, so your fingers themselves are very, very strong, more than strong enough to play any instrument. 
And so just thinking about cutting off um, your forearm and your tricep and things like that. And then the right hand is the opposite. You want to be thinking of wrist while incorporating literally everything in a subtle way. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Wow. That's a cool one. Yeah. Oh man. Neat. Yeah. Well, this has been awesome. I do have one final question though. Sure. What is your favorite? And we discussed this ahead of time. So when people say like, wait a minute, how did he know to ask that? What is your favorite (laughs) cider? Um, yeah, I'm very into ciders these days, and there's a lot of good ones up here. And tonight, and recently, I've been drinking this cider by the An- Anxo Brewing Company, A-N-X-O. Maybe it's Anzo. And they're out of Washington, D.C., and it's the Cider Blanc dry cider. And oh, it's wow. in this really beautiful floral can. And it's super delicious. It's like not sweet at all. It's kind of kind of like got that fermented stanky. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I really like it. I've been really excited about it. So That's awesome. Oh, Maddie, thank you so much for doing the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you tonight. And uh, I'm looking, I'm looking forward to hearing some of these projects that you've been, that you've been recording here in the future. And, and hopefully, um, I'll get to see y'all down here in Charleston again when Delamay gets back on the road and everybody's playing music in front of people again. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get down there. For sure. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Of course. Thanks for having me. I'm loving that right hand exercise and that left hand one. That's a really interesting one as well. Um, so be sure to, if you want to learn more about those right hand exercises, hit up Maddie and sign up for some lessons. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you to my sponsors, Mandolin Cafe, Peghead Nation, Ear Trumpet Labs, Northfield Instruments, and Pava Mandolins. We'll talk to you all next week. Cheers, everybody. Oh,